corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. As we turn to God together, in confession, first in unison and then in silence, let us pray. Lord of mercy and justice, you have given us so many talents and gifts to be used in your world. You have given us these gifts because you trust us to use them well, and you will be with us in all our work. But we disappoint you when we denigrate the value of the talents or become so fearful of failure that we don't believe that we are capable of helping in this world. Lord, forgive us. Help us to trust in the gifts you have given to us and to trust in your guidance in using them. Forgive us when we are fearful, stubborn, apathetic, and indifferent to the needs around us. Give us hearts for serving you all our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. O Lord, receive now the silent prayers of each of our hearts. Amen. Rejoice and celebrate. God has placed God's trust and love deep within your hearts. You have been forgiven and are called to serve God. And serve we will. Alleluia. Amen.
and let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, people get nicknames uh, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, for some, uh, like me, it's a matter of what I would call the convenience of distinction. The convenience of distinction. My given name is Norman Anthony Sundermeyer. Uh, my father's name was Norman, and my mother did not want a big norm, little norm dichotomy in the house. And so they called me by a variant of my second name, Tony. Uh, the same convenience of distinction works for boys who are the third in their family and are often called Trip. It's a matter of convenience to distinguish one from the other. But beyond convenience, nicknames are also derived from one's physical characteristics. For example, as a, as a younger man, Charles de Gaulle was called the Great Asparagus. His friends, his so-called friends, uh, and peers called him this because of his tall and, and lanky frame. Or, or how about just this nickname? You'll know right away who I'm talking about uh, if you're of a certain generation. Old Blue Eyes. You know right away that's Frank Sinatra. You know him by his nickname. You know him by that physical characteristic. Uh, nicknames are also born out of personality traits. Margaret Thatcher was known as the Iron Lady because of her resolve and her strength. Or how about Albert Einstein? And in hindsight, this is an obvious misnomer, but when Einstein was a child, his family and friends actually referred to him as the dopey one. Uh, then there are nicknames that are used to describe celebrities, right? Fans give celebrities nicknames as a way to feel close to them, as, as sort of an inside way of talking about them. You've got folks like J-Lo, Jennifer Lopez. How about Brother Ray, Ray Charles, or, or King James, uh, LeBron James, or how about T-Swift? All the late elementary school girls love that one at the 9 o'clock service. Taylor Swift. There's just a few examples of, of, of fans coming together and sort of, of naming or nicknaming this, their celebrity of choice. While there is no evidence that Jesus ever went by a nickname per se, there is a biblical testimony to the fact that he would be known by different names that he'd be known by different titles. He would answer to the name rabbi, of course, which referenced his standing as a teacher. Uh, next week is the final Sunday in the church calendar liturgical year, and the last Sunday before Advent is traditionally called Christ the King Sunday. The church gives Jesus another nickname. We call him King. Then come December, we move into Advent where the monikers lifted from the prophet Isaiah, these titles of wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father, will apply these titles, will, will apply these nicknames to Jesus. And then throughout the church year, as we read scripture together and as we hear the word proclaim, we'll, we'll learn of other nicknames, other titles that will be added. Lord, Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, the Word of God, the second Adam, the one who takes away the sins of the world. 
And then you get to the Gospel of John, and, and the writing is distinct from the other Gospels. In part, you have this distinction made known in Jesus' own nicknaming of himself, giving him his own titles through these various I am statements. You know these. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the life. All of these are added to the long list of names and titles and monikers which Jesus is known by both inside and outside of the church. In Western culture, you say, who is the son of God? And I still think most people will recognize that that is referring to Jesus because these titles and these monikers and these nicknames say something about who he is, say something about his character and his work. Well, in the story from Mark chapter 3, it appears that there are some folks who are trying to give Jesus some more nicknames. They're trying to give him some more nicknames. Uh, at this juncture of the, the story, Jesus has already been baptized, been tempted in the wilderness. He's launched his ministry in the region of Galilee. He has, as Sarah Kate alluded to, has called together his team. He's brought together his disciples. And his healing work of casting out demons and his counter-traditional teachings about piety and religious obligations such as fasting and Sabbath-keeping began to raise the ire and attention of the gatekeepers of first-century Judaism. Namely, we're talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. Specifically, in this text, Jesus has come back to his hometown. And there are two groups of folks wanting to give him new nicknames. The first group described by Mark is simply called the people. Mark says the people say something, and, and there's no reason not to think that the people did not uh, include Jesus' own family. That the people is the vast majority of the folks who were there, and what nickname do they want to give him? Madman. Jesus, the madman. In fact, they say he is out of his mind, and they try to restrain him. Then the scribes come along. The scribes are, are, are part of the gatekeeping group of, uh, of the religious practices of the day. The scribes in particular were commentators and teachers of the Bible, and they're ready to hand down a nickname too. They move from madness to the demonic, and they declare that he has Beelzebul. Now, the name Beelzebul is a name derived from the Canaanite god known as Baal. And in Jewish thought, this god, Baal, represented the dark forces of the universe. And these dark forces were not abstract. They could inhabit people. They could inhabit places. They could inhabit things. And so for someone to say that this rabbi, this Jesus, is working for Beelzebul, it's more than just a tongue-and-cheek slight. This is a derogatory claim of the highest order. Because Beelzebul is the opposite of Yahweh. In theological terms, Beelzebul is the anti-Christ, seeking to undo God's purposes in and for the world. As I said just a moment ago, this is not just some abstract concept here. 
For the first century, uh, people believed that this uh, demonic force could inhabit someone's life, could be at work in the world, playing out its purposes against God on the stage of history. And this battle between God and Beelzebul was also not just something between these two entities, but was representative of, of this cosmic battle that was going on in the universe. That God's will was, was being buffered or, or, or fought against by demonic forces and powers. And basically what the scribes are saying is, is that Jesus, you're playing for the wrong team. You're on the wrong side. You're on the side of the devil. So the people are calling him mad, and the scribes are calling him the devil. Two new nicknames they want to give to Jesus. But why? Why are they naming him these names? And and Mark will tell us. It's because, he says, that Jesus was casting out demons. Jesus casting out demons. And here is their thinking. It's somewhat comedic. They're thinking that this Jesus must be the ruler of the demons or the ruler of the demonic world because he possesses the power to cast them out. Jesus immediately confronts their illogic. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. In, in other words, why in the world, if we're trying to build up this household of demonic force and evil, why would we seek to undo that demonic force? It makes no sense. Why would the house be at war with itself? Now what happens next is quite fascinating in terms of the, the telling of this story. Instead of Jesus making a defense for a different nickname, right? So you've got the people saying, this Jesus is mad. They're saying, Jesus the madman. And instead of Jesus saying something like, I'm not mad, I'm actually the light of the world, right? Countering that nickname with something else. Or, 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 or the scribe saying, uh, you're the son of Satan. He says, no, 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 no. I'm not the son of Satan. I'm actually the son of God. Instead of doing that, he goes in a surprising direction. He says this, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed, the house can be plundered. Jesus is actually indirectly giving himself another nickname. It's not the son of God. It's not the son of man. It's not the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This nickname he's given himself is Thief. Jesus, the Thief. He understands that part of his mission is to break into the house of the demonic forces, to tie them up, and to plunder that which those forces hold under their authority. Jesus sees his mission in part as a spiritual breaking and entering, as a false arrest, as robbery. And while we don't have uh, Christ the Thief Sunday in our liturgical calendar, and while during Advent we will not call him wonderful felon, mighty offender, prince of crime or everlasting robber, This moniker, this nickname, Jesus 
The thief will set up the conflict that will carry throughout the telling of Mark's gospel. For in Jesus' own mind, these demonic forces are not formless, but they are embodied in the gatekeepers of the tradition. These demonic forces actually sort of embody the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus thinks it's they that are, that are playing on the wrong team. They are the strong man. And Jesus is going to have to plunder their goods. He robs them, not as some divine Robin Hood or as some prototypical Machiavellian prince who is, is trying to make a power grab for, for, for authority, but instead Jesus is going to rob them because they're holding on to something that does not belong to them. They're holding on to something that does not belong to them. And Jesus is going to take it from them. And make no mistake, the scribes and the Pharisees and eventually the Romans will press charges. They will arrest him on charges of blasphemy and subversion to the empire. Charges that will eventually result in his crucifixion on a hill, on a cross, between two thieves. A thief named Jesus. But what does Jesus seek to rob? What is he trying to take from their hands? The Greek word we translate to the English word plunder here in this text alludes to a totalizing theft. This is not as if a thief comes into your neighborhood, goes your back door, looks into the kitchen and sees your MacBook there, breaks the glass, comes in, takes the MacBook and goes. It's not that kind of plundering. It's not that kind of theft. This word actually intimates a totalizing theft, a totalizing robbery. Like when the thief goes in, there is nothing. Nothing left inside. That's the kind of robbery, that's the kind of heist Jesus is going to pull off. There is nothing that Jesus won't take. That's what he's saying. There's nothing that'll be left in your hands. And, and so we have to ask the question, what are these goods? What, what goods is he taking from, from these hands? Uh, the Greek word here we translate into to goods is really the word for vessel or container. And these vessels and containers, they could hold various items. Each one would hold something that was useful to complete a task. So these things would hold something that you needed to basically run your household or to run your life. By, by analogy, think of a tackle box, right, for fishing. A tackle box has everything you need to go fishing. Right? Or think about if you're a cook or you're a chef, you, you've got on your, your countertop a container that has a, a spatula or a wire whisk. So what Jesus is taking, he's taking these containers that have useful materials in them, stuff that helps us run our households. But, but it's not just a secular sort of connotation, these, these physical elements that help run our household. A vessel could also hold religious oil, like holy oil to, to, to adorn someone with for a sacred purpose. Or it could hold relics. A vessel could hold relics that were important that had, had meaning. Jesus is going to rob them all. He's going to rob the secular and these sacred containers that hold these useful things in running the household. And so what is Jesus actually saying to the scribes? I think what he's saying is that all the tools, all the power, all the authority, all the instruments the scribes use in managing and controlling the household of God, including, and this is so important, including determining who is in and who is out, all of these tools were going to be stripped from their hands and placed under the authority 
of Jesus because Jesus runs this house. He runs the house and nobody else. He runs this kingdom and the tools of the house will be in his hands. Jesus' kingdom will not be built on the foundation of exclusion. It will not be framed out by the ideology of insiders and outsiders, aroved by the tactics of shame, abuse, fear, and tribalism. On the contrary, Jesus is going to take these tools out and build a house for all people. A house for everyone. There, there's one more angle that we might consider here about this text, something more personal, I think, that may have application for our own faith and life, and I do want to close with this thought. You know, this word for vessel or container, this Greek word, actually shows up in the New Testament 23 times. 23 times. Which by standards is, is high. The usage of this is high. What's interesting, about half of the times it is used, it's to describe the container itself, a physical uh, inanimate object, right? Like, I, like the tackle box or, or, the, or the container that holds your spatula, to talk about that, 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 that physical inanimate thing. But the other half of the time, this word is actually used to describe people. People. That people can be vessels for good. That people can be vessels for God's good. That we can actually be useful. In fact, in Acts, Romans, 2 Timothy, and 1 Peter, there are scripture texts that talk about people being these vessels. People being these containers. A person can be a container of good work in service to God's household. 2 Timothy, for example, just one example. Special vessels, says the writer, these containers can be dedicated to the owner of the house, ready for every good work. I mean, that's who we are. That's how God sees us. God sees us as vessels, as containers with the potential for good, to be actually useful in the kingdom of God, to be useful in building up the household of God. But for some of us, our potential to render good our potential to render good is significantly encumbered by metaphorical strongmen in our lives. Think with me here. These metaphorical strongmen who have their authoritative hands on us. And these strongmen, they're, they're going to look different for different people. They're not all the same for each and every one of us. For some, the strongman is an addiction. For some, the strong man is an apathy or numbness. For some, it's a sense of purposelessness or a sense of isolation. For some, the strong man is an inability to forgive or to be forgiven. For some, the strong man is doubt. For some, it's just plain tiredness, a, a tiredness, a lethargy for life. For some, it's a situation or a circumstance that simply won't resolve. For some, it's a paralysis in the face of an unknown future. Who am I going to be? What am I going to do now that I know this has changed or now that I know this thing is upon me? For some, it's an overcommitted schedule that has our priorities totally out of whack. For others, it's a, it's a grief that cannot be spoken a pain too heavy to bear. You see, the, the strong man is the thing that has a hold of you 
that you actually give authority to you to, to. You give reverence to. You honor it in a certain way, even though you may not want to. And it is the thing that impedes your ability to live into your gifts, to live into your voice, to live into your purpose in a new and a fresh way. Friends, Jesus looks at you and me as his vessels. And he is ready to break in. He is ready to break into your life. He's ready to tie up the strong man that holds authority over you, that prohibits you from living into your God-given gifts. Jesus is ready to take you under his authority. He's ready to liberate you from the power of the strong man. He wants to take us out from that rule, that thing that's ruling your life right now. Wants to take you out from that rule and put his own love and grace as the authority of your life so that you and I may be useful in the kingdom of God. You know, it's, it may be easy for us as, as Christians that, that have confessed at one time in their life that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Jesus is the Son of God. It may be another thing altogether to think of Jesus wearing a ski mask and confess him as our thief. But that's part of his work too. And so we pray a prayer that is different than many of the prayers we often pray. That we pray that Jesus is a thief. That Jesus breaks into our lives. We pray, Jesus, that you would bind up the strong man so that we may be liberated to be good and do good for your world. We pray the prayer, O oh Lord, may the thief enter in. Amen.